Hey everybody, welcome back. This is week 31 of Creative Come Follow Me for the New Testament. This week we get to finish up the book of Acts. So we're going to cover these last seven chapters, uh, kind of the end of Paul's written record. There's more to Paul's story and we'll get bits and pieces of it as we go into the epistles. But we don't really know how his story ends, but we do know this climactic series of events. In fact, as I was reviewing all the things that happened in this week's chapters, I found myself thinking of that, you know, that intro scene in The Princess Bride where the grandpa is trying to persuade his grandson to like this book and he talks about the sword fights and the giants. That's sort of what you have this week in a way that we've never seen before. You're going to see barbarians and vipers and shipwrecks and amazing trial scenes. I mean, there's a lot of action happening in these last seven chapters. But I have to say, I think pinnacle of all of it is Paul. Of course it's Paul, right? This is his story teaching what the Savior taught, what the Savior would teach if he were there. And Paul does it beautifully. He he is a remarkable teacher, especially at this point in his journey. Because remember, he's been doing this for decades now, and he, he has a lot of history behind him, and he's going to stand nobly and boldly and testify about what he saw, especially what he saw on the road to Damascus. And he'll testify to several different places, and endure a lot of hardship. I think what I thought was the most remarkable about Paul is his attitude. I mean, a lot of us can go through hard things. It's very rare to do it as with such a positive outlook. And that's what you see from Paul this week. At least that's what I saw. Um, there's this great quote I came across in this week's studies. It doesn't necessarily tie to the chapters of this week. It was on repentance. It's from Lynn Robbins. And he there was an ending line that just sort of caught my eye. He said, our success then isn't going from failure to failure, but growing from failure to failure without any loss of enthusiasm. That's repentance. You know, that looking with fresh eyes at ourselves, at God, at the people around us. And that's what Paul manages to do over and over again, despite repeated what would seem like failures and repeated stretches where he's left wondering if anybody remembers where he is like he, he continues to go forward and he continues to go forward with a cheerful countenance the way that he's instructed and I just think it's a powerful example of how to endure hard things and endure them well so grab your scriptures grab your notes there's seven chapters to cover you guys so it's time to get started Where we begin in chapter 22 is right where we left off at the end of 21. Remember last week when we sort of set the stage, Paul's on the steps of the Antonia Fortress and he's asked for permission to speak to the Jews who are angry and want to grab him and kill him. That's who Paul wants to talk to. And he wants to defend himself. What's interesting about Paul is I don't think it's so much a defense of himself. I don't think he's trying to get himself out of this bind. I really think what he wants to defend is what he saw. He wants to defend his testimony, how he got it, and why he holds to it. I think it's why Paul is such a hero figure for Joseph Smith. Joseph Smith is going to mention Paul many times, even in scripture, and you can tell that they have a similar story, right? They have an experience that they understand if you don't believe it, because it seems remarkable on every level, but it happened, and they will continue to tell you that it happened until they die. Both of them are these epic men of testimony. On the steps of this prison, he makes his defense by explaining his situation. I just really love the way Paul does it, because I think what he's trying to make clear to the Jews who are on this street is, 
this is not a random chance. This isn't a fleeting vision that I had or just an idea in my mind. Let me tell you my story. And so he begins at the beginning. He tells us where he came from. So if you look in three, you can see that he's a Jew and that he came from Tarsus and he was educated in Jerusalem. Not just any education, but under Gamaliel, who's this incredible, well-respected Pharisee. We've seen him before already in the New Testament. That should automatically give him a lot of credibility. Then he takes it one step further and talks about what he has in common with this angry mob, or what he had in common. You can find that at the end of three. This is when he says, and was taught according to the perfect manner of the law of the fathers. He, remember, he was a Pharisee. That means he was very careful in obeying the law of Moses all of his life. And then I love this ending line, and was zealous toward God as ye all are this day. He immediately is trying to neutralize the tension by saying, I understand why you're so angry. In fact, I respect why you're, why you're angry. Because he's saying to them, I, I was right where you are. Right? I, um, I also was zealous towards God. I also believed that the law of Moses was critically important, and I still believe it to this day. So kind of like President Nelson's been teaching us about being a peacemaker and stopping contention, by putting that line in of saying, I understand where you're coming from. Even though your methods are not my methods, I understand your heart. He tries to neutralize the tension. And then he teaches them where he went with his zealousness. He actually is a couple steps beyond this angry mob because his job was to round up Christians and persecute them. So that's what he teaches about. He talks about how he was so zealous for the law that he also went after people who believed in this new faith and in Jesus Christ and, and brought them to Jerusalem. He had papers to do it. He, he sort of gives himself credibility by saying, let me tell you where I was before my experience on the road to Damascus. The reason I think that's really important is when you see in six, he says he was on the way to persecute Christians when this vision happened. I think that matters because it tells you that Paul is not an apostate. He's not someone who has slowly dwindled in his faith and then considered other faiths and jumped on board. Paul is someone who was zealously going towards one soccer goal and then was turned the other way. I think it gives his story credibility because it's not that he doubts what they believe or why they believe it. He just had an experience with deity and he can't deny it. So that's where he goes next. He talks about the light. Just like we studied before, you have a second account of Paul of what happened on the road to Damascus. But just like we see with Joseph Smith and the different accounts, you get added detail in each telling. Sometimes he'll mention one thing and sometimes another to give you this full picture. Depending on his audience, he'll adjust the story or focus on different parts. And in this one in particular, you get a little more understanding of what the Savior asked him to do. So he talks about the light that comes down from heaven. He talks about the voice that says, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? And then his response to find out that this is the Lord. And in fact, he is Jesus of Nazareth, just as these Christians who he's been persecuting have witnessed. And then he asks, what are you supposed to do? This is in verse 10. And he gets that guidance, arise and go into Damascus, and there it shall be told thee of all the things which are appointed for thee to do. What I like about his telling, and it's going to get a little more in the next couple of verses, but he makes it clear that this is something that stopped him in his tracks. You know, it's not something he caught out of the side of his vision. You know, he talks about hearing things, seeing things talking to things. There are a lot of senses involved. In fact, he even adds credibility by saying, look, it wasn't just me. There were others on the road to Damascus. They also saw this light. They didn't hear the voice that I heard, but they saw the light. This is, this happened to me and I can't deny it. 
And then he talks about the next phase. So he gets direction to go to Ananias from the Lord. What I like about that piece is he emphasizes the fact that Paul's not the hero of this story. To me, the hero of this story is Ananias. You know, he he puts a big spotlight on this other devout Jew who gives him this healing. He goes to Ananias, his sight is restored, and he gets direction on what he's supposed to do next. You don't get this in the other account. I really like how it's written in 22, because in verse 14, it says, And he said, meaning Ananias, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will and see that just one. Capitalized, meaning you're going to see the Messiah. And see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now, why tarriest thou? Arise, and be baptized, and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Ananias, in this moment chooses to speak words that I imagine must have been hard. Maybe they weren't. I hate to project that on Ananias, but Ananias is a devout Christian who's seen the persecutions that Saul at this time had put out. And to know that he's the one that's chosen and he's the one that's going to see the Lord and hear his voice. I just think it must be hard. The same way my heart went out to Emma Smith so much in the Doctrine and Covenants when so many others got to see the plates and handle the plates and she didn't, for whatever reason. She just had to support and believe and, you know, push the work forward in her way. And as an elect lady, she does. And that must have been hard for Ananias, I assume. But he, Paul, describes him as this hero figure in his story. Somebody who heals him, sets him on the path to go out and do this work. And then another piece you get in this Acts 22 account that you don't see in the others is a second witness. This is more credibility added to the story when he says, I was in the temple and I experienced something again. So in 17, and it came to pass that when I was come again to Jerusalem, even while I prayed in the temple, I was in a trance or in a vision. And I saw him saying unto me, make haste and get thee quickly out of Jerusalem, for they were not received that testimony concerning me. And then he gets direction in that visionary experience in this most sacred place to the Jews to go and take the work to the Gentiles because the Jews are in Jerusalem will not receive him. So he's directed to take the work out. That is, he just threw a bunch of fuel on the spire <laughs> because that word to hear that in this sacred, holy place, he received direction from the Messiah to take the gospel to the Gentiles. That's something that these, these um, zealous Jews can't abide. You know, that 1500 years of tradition that they're resting on it's hard to turn. And so they get angry and they get aggressive and Paul has to be retrieved again. You know, basically he's, he's pulled into safety again and kind of thrown into prison. And now he's going to have to go and defend himself. What's interesting is there's a scourging that happens. This is sort of the, at this period of time, it's their way of finding out truth. If you'll stick to your story while you're being scourged, then they call it truth. And so that's what happens to Paul until he stands up for his rights. So around 25, as this scourging is about to occur, or maybe in the middle of it, he defends himself and says, is it lawful for you to scourge a man that is a Roman and uncondemned? He knows his rights. He's a Roman citizen, which means he can't be scourged. He can't be tortured without a fair trial. And there's been no trial that has occurred. So he puts that forward. What I like about that is it would have been easy for Paul to do a couple other things. He could have just taken this scourging as a bit of a martyr moment to let people see. He could have prayed for divine intervention to happen. He could have done any number of those things. What I think is interesting is Paul chooses to solve this problem on his own. 
it, it's not really on his own because I think the Lord had him born in Tarsus so that these moments could happen, so that he would have these rights. So this is a blessing that God has already provided him that now Paul is putting into action. But he doesn't rely on new miracles to happen. I just think this is powerful because sometimes this happens to me. Sometimes I pray for guidance or often I'll pray for confirmation of a revelation, you know, something I remember from the past, but don't remember as sharply as I used to. And I'll get this guidance from the spirit. Like, Maria, you already know. We see this with Oliver Cowdery in Doctrine and Covenants 6 as well. Sometimes I think you have to have the courage to say, no, I can take care of this. You've already given me all the blessings I need in order to solve my problem. So I'm going to solve it. So that's what he does. He claims his Roman citizenship, which makes the guard really nervous because now he's breaking Roman law. And so things have to get escalated to the next level. And that's where we go in chapter 23. You're going to see a lot of echoes of the Savior's life, especially that last week in the trials in Paul's story, because the next place Paul will go is before the Sanhedrin. I just think it's possible that Paul hoped this would go better. You know, where the mob on the street was angry and maybe uneducated and didn't hear or understand his message. I think maybe he thought, oh good, when I get to the Sanhedrin, they are educated men who are defenders of the law. They will understand my heart and what has happened. They'll get it. Remember, he has history with the Sanhedrin. We don't know exactly his association, but most people think that at the time of Stephen's stoning, remember when Paul was holding all the cloaks of those who stoned him, that he was some sort of assistant to the Sanhedrin or some like a page of sorts. And so he knows these men and he knows how much education they have and their, their logic, and he knows how to talk to them. And so I think he hopes, at least that's how I read it, because it says in verse one, Paul earnestly beholding the council. I think he's happy to get to this point and thinks, maybe this is this is going to go better. Let me tell my story in this place. And he gets caught off guard, I think. First, he declares his motives, that he is not a criminal. He, he comes with earnestness and that his conscience is clear. I really like the way he phrases. He says, men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Meaning all that time when he was a Pharisee and believed that he was doing God's will, he had a clear conscience. And as soon as he learned that his direction was wrong, he repented and now has a clear conscience because he's also doing God's will. He's just running towards the other soccer goal, but he, he feels at peace. The reason I like this is there's great talk from Richard G. Scott. It's in the notes. But he talked about the difference between peace of conscience and peace of mind. Peace of mind, he said, is sort of circumstantial. You can have peace of mind if things are going pretty well. Peace of conscience is deeper. It is this steady, grounded foundation. In fact, he calls it a foundation to build happiness upon. It's something that you're free of guilt, you're free of shame, you're free of and sorrow. It is this steady stance. And that's where Paul is. He's not afraid. He's meek, but he is not afraid. What he is met with immediately in the council is a breach where he hoped these men would at least uphold the law of Moses and understand his heart. He immediately gets a quick glance at that this Sanhedrin is maybe not the Sanhedrin he knew from 20 years ago because they smack him across his face. This is a, not just a, a painful thing. It's also a, a way to immediately put him down. And it is in defiance of the law of Moses, which is exactly what Paul calls them on. So in verse three, he says, then said Paul unto the man who hit him, 
God shall smite thee, thou whited wall, for thou sittest to judge me after the law and commandest me to be smitten contrary to the law. He's basically saying to you, like, you are here to defend the law and you just broke it right here in front of me. And so he calls him on it. He calls him basically a hypocrite. And what's hard is he finds out in the next verse that this is in fact the high priest. And so he immediately, I wouldn't say apologizes, but he does say, I'm sorry for breaking the law. Because there's another law of Moses that says you need to stick up for your elders. So if you look in the verses, it says in four, and they stood by, said, revilest thou God's high priest? And then said Paul, I wist not, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Paul, in this moment, is meek to me. He, he's channeling the Savior's meekness because he could have been so angry and he could have been so spiteful. And instead, he like pulls everything in and says, You're right. I, this, if this is the leader, I will show honor and respect. He honors the law of Moses even when this high priest who's supposed to be God's high priest, according to them, broke the law right in front of him, he will, as Paul, stand up for the law and demonstrate it. That just takes a lot of control. You know, this self-control that is so beautifully demonstrated by the Savior, we see echoing through Paul's message because he says, okay. And then he starts to speak. So he talks about being a Pharisee and the son of a Pharisee. He's from this legacy of Pharisees. And then he sees this opportunity. Basically what will happen is he'll, the, the house, this council will get divided. Because remember, it's made up of Pharisees and Sadducees. Pharisees believe in the resurrection. In fact, they have a strong hope of a resurrected Messiah that will come and that the 12 tribes will be restored and all that hope is in the future for them. Then you also have the Sadducees who don't believe in the resurrection. And so there is this dividing line. And some people teach this, I think it was even in the Institute Manual, that it says that Paul, knowing this about the two sides of this body, deliberately puts this like truth bomb in the middle and lets it explode, <laughs> you know, because they'll fight over resurrection. I actually, I don't know, that doesn't sit right with me because I just feel like the spirit doesn't prompt you to cause contention. What I think might be happening is that Paul is hoping for allies. I think what he's trying to say, at least to the Pharisees in the room, is we're on the same side. What I am preaching and what I am teaching is that the resurrection is real. In fact, I know it's real because I've seen the resurrected Savior for myself. We're on the same side. So you can see the Pharisees respond. In 9, they say, We find no evil in this man, but if a spirit or an angel has spoken to him, let us not fight against God. Remember, that's kind of the stance Gamaliel took decades ago. He was saying, like, if this is God's will, we can't, we're not going to be able to stop it if he believes we have to defend it. They're in this tight spot. The Pharisees and the Sanhedrin have to agree with Paul that there is a hope of a resurrection because that's, you know, that's their stance. So now they're sort of stuck. But it causes so much contention in the room that the guard thinks that Paul might get torn to pieces. You know, you can almost see the anger boiling up. And so the guard takes Paul out and Paul's opportunity to teach the Sanhedrin is gone. I just wonder how hard it must have been to get pulled out of that room where he might have had hope that this group would hear, this group would understand. It reminds me of Joseph Smith when he goes to that minister and tells him about his vision, thinking of all people, he'll understand when God speaks to you, you have to respond. And the minister shuts him down and says, this doesn't happen. And you shouldn't tell anybody else about this. Like, I think he must have felt so alone in that moment. And that's what I think Paul must feel. Because 
the next night when he is alone and feeling like maybe hope is lost, he gets a visit in prison. And it's a pretty powerful one. So if you look in the verses, you can see what happens at 11. And the night following, the Lord stood by him and said, Be of good cheer, Paul, for as thou hast testified of me in Jerusalem, so must thou bear witness also at Rome. The Savior himself comes. This is rare instances for the Savior to visit this world. And he comes to Paul in this dark setting and says, don't give up hope. You can make it. You can, you're going to do great things for me, Paul. What you just did that feels like it didn't go well, you're going to do that same thing in grander places. Trust me, there's more to your story. And I just think it's this moment of hope, right? It's Paul is assured and comforted. And I think it's the promise all of us have. Not that we'll experience the resurrected Savior like this, but we will have comfort in these dark, heavy moments. There are, I, I, I can't remember if I've taught you this before, but I call these my eye of the storm moments because there's been a lot of situations in my life where from the outside, it looks like everything is falling apart. You know, almost like a storm is swirling around me. And those on the outside worry a lot for me because life is so hard. You know, when Jason's sick or when things are not going well, it seems as if I'm caught in this horrible storm. And I am, but there's also this eye right in the center. I have found many times where the Lord will find a way to give me this cushion of comfort in the middle of all the hard. I'm not out of the hard. He doesn't stop the storm, but there is a bit of a cushion where I feel like he sees me and he knows me and he will bless me. He reminds me that he's he's got me. And that's what happens, Paul, here. I feel like in this prison cell, he's in the eye of this hurricane and where everything else is chaos and tension. He's got stillness and peace because the Lord comes to him. And then you see maybe why he needed it because of what comes next. Basically, there's a vendetta against Paul with 40 of these zealous Jews. They're so zealous to take Paul out that they make a covenant or pact between them that they're not going to drink or eat until Paul is executed. 40 men. you guys. That's a pretty big number. It's like this secret combination that they create. So their plan is to get the guard to bring Paul back to the council. And on the way, they hoped to take Paul out. That's their plan. What's powerful is the way the Lord intercepts. And he does it through this little nephew. I don't know how old this kid is, but Paul's sister's son overhears somehow the plot of these 40 men and lets the captain know this is what's going to happen. That's going to cause the captain to look bad. If his prisoner gets executed en route, he'll look bad. So he takes this opportunity, believes the nephew and gets Paul out of there. He gives him armed guards and he sends him to go and talk to Felix. This It's basically taking his court case from this local level and moving it up a notch saying like, you need to get out of this city and you need some protection. And so the Lord provides it for him. So that's where he goes next. At the top of chapter 24 in my scriptures, I wrote law and order. <laughs> That's basically what this chapter is, you guys. It sounds like an episode of law and order. I wish I could do that like dung dung sound because that's what you're going to find. It's You have like the fancy lawyer. You have this little innocent man trying to defend himself in court. You have a judge that isn't exactly unbiased. It's, it's a very cinematic chapter. Because basically what happens is since Paul has been taken up to Caesarea, this is sort of the Roman capital of this area. And you have the governor of the area named Felix. Felix is in the exact same spot that Pilate was in when he was, you know, kind of standing in judgment of the savior. He's in the same role. 
So he goes up to see Felix and the the Jewish council are invited to come up and to prosecute, you know, to be, to put their case forward in front of Felix. What's interesting is they don't present their own case. I think they know that they are on shaky ground. Even the captain of the guard in the last chapter says this, they have no reason to hold him. There's no reason to think him worthy of death. So when he presents him to Felix, he's like, I don't know what their case is. And I think that's why they hire a fancy attorney. So if you look in verse one, you can see that they hire someone named Tertullius to come and present their case. A lot of people think that he must be a Roman because of his name, that he is probably a fancy lawyer that comes in. And I think he comes in with a bit of pomp and, you know, like he thinks he's going to win this case pretty easy. I just think it's interesting to see how it plays out. So he comes in complimenting Felix. So he says, seeing, this is in verse two, seeing that by thee we enjoy great quietness and that very worthy deeds are done unto this nation by thy providence. He immediately flatters the judge. I mean, the whole role of any Roman leader is to keep the peace and keep things quiet. And so he's instantly flattering him. And then he sets this fear in Felix. I think that's this sneaky lawyer's goal is to create a feeling of fear. Because rather than talking initially about the temple and bringing Gentiles into the temple, which is what Paul was initially accused of, he adds in this other charge of sedition, similar to what we saw when the Sanhedrin dealt with the Savior. So if you look in five, it says, for we have found this man a pestilent fellow and a mover of sedition among all the Jews throughout the world and a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. Since Jesus is of Nazareth, they sometimes called those who were Christian Nazarenes. That's his, that's his goal. This lawyer is trying to plant a seed of fear in Felix, because the only thing that could uproot Felix from his job is if there is sedition or an uprising. So they're trying to plant these seeds that this guy might look calm. He has plans. Right? And so then he talks about the chief captain, the man who brought Paul safely from Jerusalem up to Caesarea and basically says, it's his fault that we're even here, his violence. We were going to take care of this on our own. And instead, your chief captain brought him out of our hands. And so now here we are. And then the prosecution rests, you guys, like at nine. That's all they have to say. They really think, I think this slick lawyer thinks I've done everything I need to do. The case is one. And then you see Paul stand up. So in 10, then Paul, after the governor had beckoned unto him to speak, answered, for as much as I know that thou hast been many years a judge unto this nation, I do the more cheerfully answer for myself. Okay, here's what I like about this. I actually wonder when the Savior came to Paul in prison and he had that visionary experience and he told him to be of good cheer. I don't think that this was just a like, come on, Paul, you can do it sort of message. I think the Savior was giving him legal advice. I think he was saying, when you present your case from this moment forward, do it with a cheerful countenance. The same way the Savior demonstrated in his life. He's saying, I think he thinks it will set everybody on their heels, but they won't know how to handle it because that's basically what happens. Instead of groveling in this moment, instead of pleading for his life from the governor or you know, being afraid of this fancy lawyer, he has a cheerful countenance and he speaks with clarity and meekness and incredible, quiet power. And so he talks about it. So in 12, he starts to defend his case. You can actually walk through this verse by verse. This is why it feels like law and order to me, because he basically breaks down the prosecution's case verse by verse. In verse 12, he talks about how there's no crime that's been committed. 13, there's no proof of anything they're accusing me of. 14, he reminds them that they worship the same God that 
he is someone who believes in the God of the Jews. That's a powerful statement for somebody who's been accused of sedition and trying to start this whole new sect or uprising, right? He's, he's making it really clear. In fact, he talks about his motives in 18. So he says in 18, whereupon certain Jews from Asia found me purified in the temple, neither with the multitude nor with tumult. He says, I came in peace. I came to the temple that day. In fact, the whole reason he comes is to offer the alms that he's gathered from all the outlying cities as he's been teaching. People have made contributions to the church and he's bringing them back to Jerusalem. That was his motive for coming, not to start an uprising, not to gather a bunch of followers. He simply came to the temple to go through the purification rites that are absolutely acceptable. And so he states his case. He makes it pretty clear. He also mentions that they have no witnesses. You know, there's no one here, judge. Like, tell me where those men are that I supposedly brought into the temple. Where are they? Where are the people who are what the prosecution says? Where are the followers? Where is the sedition? Point to it. And then he states what he thinks their real motive is. And that's in 21. He says, except it be for this one voice that I cried standing among them, touching the resurrection of the dead, I am called into question with you this day. He's trying to help Felix understand that the whole reason I'm here is because I stood up for my religious beliefs. I believe in the resurrection. Many Jews believe in the resurrection. All the Pharisees believe in the resurrection. That's why I'm here. That's why they are angry with me. And then... Felix gets in a tight spot because he, just like, you know, the captain of the guard can tell that Paul didn't do any of these things and that the prosecution really has no case, but he's in the same spot that Pilate was. He has to please the Jews. He has to walk this delicate line between keeping Rome happy and keeping the Jews happy. And he doesn't know where to go from here. So he stalls and he basically says, we're going to call the captain of the guard and we'll get his voice on it. And then he slides in this little detail about getting a bribe. So you can see that in 25, Paul actually gets a chance to talk again to Felix and to Felix's wife and, or mistress or whatever she is. And he makes Felix uneasy. Felix's, his wife is someone who was married to someone else and left her husband to come and marry Felix. They're in a delicate marriage arrangement according to civil laws. And so when Paul teaches truth, Felix trembles a little bit and he, he gets nervous. And so instead of letting this court case play out and declaring him innocent, he just casts him into prison. But he hopes he'll get a bribe. In fact, that's what you see in 26. He hoped also that money should be given him of Paul, that he might lose him. Felix, I think either he knows Paul has money from gathering up all these alms and bringing them to Jerusalem, or he knows how much the church loves Paul and thinks that they'll pay a ransom for him. Or it's possible Paul is actually a wealthy man from the get-go and has a reserve of money to work with, and Felix knows that. Either way, Felix holds him unlawfully in the hopes of getting a payout. But Paul won't give in. He is someone who has decided to have a cheerful countenance no matter where he is, but he will not break law. He will not go against his principles. And so he says, basically, put me in jail. So he sticks in jail for two years because he won't pay this bribe until there's a change in power. And that's what we're going to find in chapter 25. You have to wonder what those two years in prison must have felt like for Paul. You know, to be unjustly accused of something eats at me. I hate that feeling. And he's in that spot for years, you guys. He knows he's innocent. He also knows that the leadership know he's innocent, that he doesn't belong in bonds, and yet he's stuck. 
He's in the same spot that Joseph Smith is with Liberty Jail, where he's accused of things that he's not guilty of, and he can't get a fair trial, and he's stuck. And he does the exact same, the prof, exact same thing the prophet Joseph did when he was confined. He connects with God, and he connects with his people. Much of what we're going to study in the following weeks, you guys, are his epistles during this time. Every time Paul's in prison, and any time he's in a spot of hardship where he can't vocally go out and talk to people, he will write and he'll write tongues to all these different pockets. On the course of his three missions, he basically set up 14 branches of sorts. And so he's going to check on them and write to them while he waits for his deliverance to come. And there must have been an emotional roller coaster in all of this and a frustration, but Paul keeps his steady, cheerful countenance throughout. I think he knows the Savior has promised he's going to get to Rome. And so he trusts that somehow he's going to get rerouted. And a big piece of that happens in 25. Essentially, because Felix was corrupt and did take bribes, he gets kicked out over the course of time. Rome takes him out of his position of power and puts a new governor in place. This new governor's name is Festus. Well, I don't think Festus is, has a much stronger moral compass than Felix did, but he does seem to care about the law. And so he hears about Paul's cold case, and it's been two years, and this guy's sitting in prison, and he wants to know what's going on. So he brings Paul forward, the Jews come and offer their prosecution, Paul defends himself, and Festus is in this same tight spot where he doesn't, he knows what's true, but he won't, he won't proclaim Paul innocent. In fact, you can see it play out in the verses, it says, but in nine, but Festus, willing to do the Jews a pleasure, answered Paul and said, wilt thou go up to Jerusalem and there be judged of these things before me? And then Paul said, I stand at Caesar's judgment seat where I have ought to be judged. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as thou very well knowest. Paul knows his rights, and he knows that Festus knows he's innocent. And so he basically makes an appeal and says, I want to take my case to the higher court. The higher court, you guys, is Rome. That's the next step in this chain. That's going to put Festus in a really tight spot, because in order to take the emperor's time with a case, like you better have a solid reason to send it there. The same way you wouldn't send something up to the Supreme Court that hasn't been well litigated in lower courts. He, he better be able to stand up for it. So he basically says to Paul, okay, if that's what you want, I'll send your case on. But then he's in a bind because he has to send Paul along with an epistle that explains why Paul is going to the emperor. And he's stuck. In the meantime, King Agrippa visits his area. So he's a governor of the area, he's new, and the king of the whole area comes to visit and kind of you know, proclaim Festus a good governor and set things in motion. And in the process, he hears about Paul. So King Agrippa and Bernice, his sister, happen to be in town and they're curious about Paul. They hear about this certain man that's left in bonds and they say, I'll hear the case. So that's what happens in 22. Then Agrippa said unto Festus, I would also hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, thou shalt hear him. This is... It'll do two things. First, it gives Festus another chance to hear Paul's story so that he can figure out what to write to the emperor that he's going to send this court case to. And it gives Paul a chance to fulfill the prophecy that Ananias said to him decades ago, that he was going to stand before kings and testify about what he saw. Now, all of a sudden, Paul is right in that spot. He's not all the way to Rome. That's what the Savior promised. But Ananias promised he would stand before a king and on the next day, that's going to happen. And that's where we go in 26. I think it's pretty remarkable that even after several failed court experiences, Paul keeps the same defense. 
He still doesn't hire a lawyer. I mean, I don't know what his options were at this point, but he actually comes up with the exact same story that he's taught before. He doesn't change his strategy. When he goes before the king, he tells him about his history, who he is, where he came from, his time persecuting the saints, and this miraculous vision that stopped him in his tracks and changed the course of his life. And I just find that remarkable. You know, you would think you finally have a chance. You've had two years to sit and think about your defense, and you might have come up with some other strategy, something that you hope would please a king. But Paul's goal is not to get out of bonds. His goal is to get to Rome. And so I don't think he cares too much what happens here. He trusts that God will prevail. And so he just needs to speak truth. The only thing that can get in Paul's way of his destiny happening is if Paul stops being the man Christ called him to be. And so he will take the exact same stance and he'll teach the exact same story with a few added details in this account. So when you look he, in 13, he talks again about the light that he sees. At midday, O king, I saw in, in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me saying in Hebrew, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. It's the same story. It's the same defense, you guys. He is, he's not altering his stance. It doesn't matter if he's speaking to a king or to a mob on the street. He will tell what he saw. He's in the same spot Joseph Smith is, who basically says, like, I knew it, and I knew that God knew it, and I can't deny it. And so this is what I'm going to teach. And then he talks about this added peace. We didn't get this in the previous account, but you get an addition in this one that I just love, what the Savior calls him to do. So in 16, but rise and stand up on thy feet. This is the Savior talking to Paul in this scenario. For I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. This is why I came to speak to you, Paul. This is the resurrected Lord talking to Paul on this road to Damascus. And he says, to make thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen and of those things in which I will appear unto thee. What I love about this piece is that he says a minister and a witness. He's not just someone who's going to go and reiterate his dramatic experience on the road to Damascus. He will do that, and we've seen it several times this week already, but he's also called to be a minister. He's called to care for the saints, to teach them the ways of Christ, to you know, set apart new people in callings. He's, he's not just a puppet that will go and talk about this miracle that happened. The same way Alma the Younger doesn't talk about his conversion story all the time as he goes out and takes care of the saints for the whole rest of his lifetime. He's a minister and a witness. And Paul does that beautifully, I think. I also love that the Savior implies that he will talk about what he did experience on the road to Damascus and everything he will yet say. He's basically saying like, there's a future for us, Paul. I'm going to continue this relationship with you. There's more things I'm going to teach you. And I need you to testify about those things as well. He's setting him up like a prophet to say, there's, this is a living thing that's happening. Our relationship is going to continue. There's more that you're going to need to witness of. And then he talks about being sent to the Gentiles. I really love the way he expresses it. This is around verse 18, that he sent by the Lord to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them, which are sanctified by faith, which is in me. His message is to take people from darkness to light. He's going to go in pockets of the world where there hasn't been light before. They haven't had a knowledge of God. They haven't had the Abrahamic covenant and the scriptures to rest on. He's going to bring light into those places. Here's what I really like about this strategy. I think it appeals to Agrippa's Jewish side 
and his Roman side. Agrippa is this interesting ruler because he has a Jewish history. He's in the line of Herod the Great. He has a Jewish bloodline in him. So he understands Jewish culture and a lot of their, you know, stances on things. He's also heavily Roman. You know, he is someone who is in line with Roman authority. This idea of bringing light to dark places is Jewish and Roman. Jews believe in taking the gospel out. That's the Abrahamic covenant, to bring light to new places. The Romans believe in this same thing. They just don't attribute it to God. They believe that they're going to go in all these places and conquer these places to bring light and you know diplomacy and freedom and new understandings to all these darker places of the world. So he's appealing to both sides of King Agrippa and saying, this is what I was called to do. And then he says, how could I be disobedient? The same way Agrippa would understand that an order that he would get from you know, Caesar, he would follow. That's basically what Paul's appealing to. He's saying, the God who I worship and who you worship directed me to do this. So of course, I'm not going to be disobedient. That's what he's saying in 19. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto this heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coasts of Judea, and then to the Gentiles that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. He lays out the strategy that the Savior gave him, that he's going to need to speak to the Jews first, and then he's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles and bring this light to the story. I really like this pinnacle moment that hits around 22 and 23. This is when he explains his whole mission in two verses. He says, having therefore obtained help of God, I continue unto this day, witnessing both to small and to great, saying none other things than those which the prophets and Moses did say should come that Christ should suffer, that he should be the first that should rise from the dead and should show light unto the people and to the Gentiles. Paul is saying, the whole reason I'm still standing here after years in prison, after persecution, after 40 people have covenanted to kill me, the whole reason I'm still standing, King Agrippa, is because of God, because he has a work for me to do and I intend to do it. What I like about that is it aligns, aligns so beautifully what Joseph Smith taught about the work of this church. He says, it's in my margins, the fundamental principles of our religion are the testimony of the apostles and prophets concerning Jesus Christ, that he died, was buried, and rose again the third day, and ascended into heaven, and all other things which pertain to our religion are only appendages to it. That's Paul's message. He's saying, I could give you all the details. I could tell you more conversion stories. He doesn't tell anybody what happened on his missions or how the hearts of Gentiles were so much better than he may be even expected. He doesn't say any of those things. He just focuses on his message as a special witness of Christ, that he died for us, that he lives again, and that his work goes forward. That's his message. And then Festus interrupts. So after this pinnacle moment, Festus calls out with a loud voice and says, Thou art beside thyself, Paul. And he says, Much learning doth make thee mad. Paul is someone who's going to get accused of being crazy many times, the same way Joseph Smith gets accused of that when he recounts his vision. Um, I think maybe what Festus is seeing here is he thought Paul was going to come to defend himself and get himself out of trouble. And instead, he's holding to his story, which is going to take him to Nero. You know, That's the next step in his plan. If he wants to go to Rome, that's going to put him in Nero's court. Nero's a terrible person to stand in front of. And so I think Festus is trying to say, like, what are you thinking? Why are you trying to convert this king? And I think Paul feels that too. So in the next couple of verses, he says, for I am persuaded, this is Paul, I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, meaning King Agrippa, for this thing was not done in a corner. This work has been prophesied in the Jewish faith from the beginning, from Abraham's day till now. This is not new doctrine and King Agrippa must know it deep down. 
because Paul calls him on it in 27. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. And then you got that epic line next in 28 from King Agrippa, where he said, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Now, sadly, you wish that line meant that he's like on the fence and wants to convert. I, from what the scholars I studied this week said, it, it sounds like this is more of a, like, do you really think you can convert me in such a short amount of time? He's, he's calling Paul on his audaciousness at this point and kind of saying like, get back in your corner. And then Paul has one more thing to say. I actually think this is such a powerful finish. When he's just been sort of put in his place by King Agrippa, this is what Paul says. And Paul said in 29, I would to God that not only thou, but also that all that hear me this day were both almost and altogether such as I am, except these bonds. He's basically saying the same thing that Moses said. Remember when Moses said, I wish that all men could be prophets. And Joseph Smith said something similar where he's like, even the least saint can get the knowledge that I have if they pursue the right course. That's the message of the gospel, that Paul can, Agrippa can know the things that Paul knows. There is no priority status when it comes to revelation. A life of obedience yields revelation and guidance, and he wishes everybody was there. I actually think what Paul is referring to here is this settled peace that he finds. You know, he's been through decades of struggle and miracle and struggle and miracle. He's seen the whole course, and he's at this settled place where he knows who he is. And like Nephi, he knows in whom he has trusted. And so he feels at peace and he wishes everybody could be there. I think what's particularly interesting about saying this to somebody like King Agrippa, who by all accounts looks like he's in a great position, right? He comes in with pomp, he's very wealthy, he has all these servants and all this help, but being in the Roman hierarchy is always a position of fear, right? People get pulled out of power, things get turned over. I don't think even King Agrippa has the stance of confidence that Paul has, because Paul is assured that as long as he has God on his side, he's going to make it and he's going to get to Rome. King Agrippa himself, even though he's incredibly powerful, can't claim that confidence and that settled demeanor. And it's a little off-putting to him. What's interesting is at the end of this chapter, he says in 31, this man doeth nothing worthy of death or bonds. He knows he's innocent. He knows that he doesn't deserve to be a prisoner. And then in 32, then said Agrippa unto Festus, this man might have been set at liberty if he had not appealed to Caesar. If Paul had taken that plea deal, or if he hadn't asked for the option to go to Nero, he would have been set free at this point. Remember, Paul's goal isn't freedom. His goal is Rome. And that's where he's going to go next. It's really interesting to me that so many of the parables of the Savior seem to be demonstrated in the life of Paul. You know, we already talked about the parable of the laborers of the vineyard and that trouble with circumcision and the law. And then last week, the parable of the sower and how Paul will sow everywhere. This week, I feel like he demonstrates that parable of the prodigal son, just in this really interesting way. So when you get to 27, he's en route to Rome. He's designated that he has to get to Rome to stand before the emperor. And so he's got to travel by ship. The problem is it's late in the season. So you can see in verse nine, that this is a after the fast, meaning after the Feast of the Tabernacles, in the fall, late September, maybe early October, when it starts to get really treacherous to travel on the Mediterranean. So they're going to sort of hug the coastline for a little while. Remember, they're in the Caesarea area. And so if you follow on your map, there's actually a route that shows you exactly where they go. But they're going to follow the coastline for a little while and then dip under an island. And then the weather gets really dicey. And Paul starts to warn. I actually don't know how much of the weather they see yet. They get to a place where there is safe harbor. 
And Paul, as a seer, knows what's coming. He knows there are incredibly big storms headed their way. And so when the weather looks nice and they're at a safe port or an area where they could find shelter for a couple months, Paul gives them guidance. So to me, he's like the prodigal father. He is someone who says, are you sure you know what you're doing? So he, he asks, asks them in nine. Now, when much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them. And he said unto them, sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the lading and the ship, but also of our lives. What's interesting is his words fall on deaf ears, similar to, I'm sure, the guidance of the prodigal father when he, his son was determined to go. I'm sure the father tried to stop him and tried to give him advice. And before he handed over all of that inheritance said, please just hear me there. I can see what's coming and you're not going to be happy there. But the prodigal son is determined to go. And that's kind of what happens here. But you have to remember, they don't see him as a fatherly figure. They don't see him as a prophet. They see him as a prisoner. And if anything, they see him as a tent maker. Like he has no right to say that he can see danger that they can't see. So they ignore him. It says in 11, nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship more than those things which were spoken by Paul. What I think is really powerful here is that Paul's going to experience the hard that comes from their choice because they're going to head out to sea. And for a minute, it seems calm and peaceful. And then the tide changes. So in 13 and 14, you see that shift. At first, they get reassurance that this is fine. And what does Paul know? In 13, it says, and when the south wind blew softly, supposing they had obtained their purpose, loosing thence, they sailed close by Crete. So to them, the weather looks good. Things look fine. What is that guy talking about? Things are great. And they set sail. And in the process, a great wind comes, a tempestuous wind. In fact, one of the scholars I read said, this wind is probably coming, taking the sands of that area in Northern Africa and bringing it into the Mediterranean, Mediterranean, which would shred the sails of any sailing vessel. So all, in addition to all the wind and the waves, they've got to pull down their sails, which means they can't steer and they can't progress in their, pan, in their plat, path. What I think is poignant about that metaphorically is this happens to us. Anytime we choose to discount the message of those who can see, I think it's what you see with the prodigal son, right? He experiences a season of joy and rejoicing and things are going great and he's got lots of money. And then very quickly the tide turns and the winds come and he is he has no navigation. In fact, that's where things shift for this group as well. So they are stuck in the storm. They start throwing things overboard to try and control the ship better. And then they lose navigation in 20. It says, and when neither sun nor stars in many days appeared and no small tempest lay on us, all hope that we should have been saved was then taken away. Where they reach their breaking point when they come to themselves, as it's written out in that parable, is when they have no navigation. It's interesting to me, this is the exact same spot Laman and Lemuel get in on the ship with Nephi. Remember, they tie him up and they're like partying for a while and then the storms come and the Leahona stops working and they panic because what's the point of having joy if you can't navigate, if you can't progress, if you can't go forward and get to your destination? I actually think that's exactly where the prodigal son landed. He felt like he was finding freedom in this next place and what he finds is he is without navigation. There's no joy in being without a focus and progress. And so he 
has to go back to the beginning and go back home. And that's sort of what happens here. Paul steps up and mentions, hey, remember what I talked to you guys about? So in 21, but after a long abstinence, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and said, sirs, you should have hearkened unto me and not have loosed from Crete and have gained this harm and loss. What's hard for Paul, it's the same thing I think that was hard for Nephi is he has to experience the ramifications of their agency. <laughs> you know, the same way the father has to experience the financial loss and the loss of his son and the sorrow that comes with it when his son uses his agency to go. Paul had to endure all the storms and all the fear and all the, you know, this is a huge ship. It's got 276 passengers and Paul has had to endure all the hard because they wouldn't listen. And in this moment when he could have been smug and said, I told you so. Instead, he offers this peace and he says, remember, I, I tried to talk to you about this. Now let's move forward. I love that he doesn't stay in the past and make them weep. He knows that they are afraid. He knows that they are without navigation and they're, they need help. And so instead of being smug, he, he, he is a prophet. He teaches and he shows them how he can see. So in 22, he directs them the same way the Savior directed him in that prison cell where he felt alone. And now I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of any man's life among you, but of the ship. For there stood by me this night the angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, that must be brought before Caesar. And lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me. In this moment where he could have been condescending or he could have been judgy, he is gracious. And he says, I've been in your spot. I know what it feels like to be alone. Be of good cheer. We have the Lord on our side. You know, it's that same. I think it was, there was a conference talk that was referencing these verses and they talked about master the tempest is raging. Like no waters can swallow the ship where lies this apostle. You know, he needs to get to Rome. They're not going to go down as long as they stay with Paul and follow his guidance. And I just love his statement in 25. Be of good cheer for I believe God that it shall be even as it was told me. It's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to believe all his promises are sure. Paul is assured. And so he builds faith in these prodigal sailors who are coming back to him as a seer and saying, okay, what do we do next? What I think is really interesting is the angel promises that they're going to make it to an island. So they know that's their future. The storm continues for two more weeks. You would think as soon as they turn that things are going to get better. It actually makes me wonder about the prodigal son and how long that period was when he finally gets home and they kill the fatted calf and he has the robe and the ring, how long it took for things to come back to normal. You know, I'm sure there was still tension between the brothers and tension with all kinds of areas. There's a time of rebuilding that has to happen when repentance has occurred. And so I think that's what happens. There's two weeks still of struggle where they're learning to lean on Paul's guidance. They get to a point where they can tell they're getting close to land. They, they're sounding, which means they're letting a rope down to see how deep the water is, and they can tell they're getting closer. The problem with that is that means you're going to bash into rocks, especially if it's dark and you can't see. There's no navigation, you can't see. And so they worry, and some men try to escape. And Paul says to the captain of the ship, basically, look, we're all in this together. In order for that promise to occur where no men can be lost, they need to stay on the ship with me. So they cut the lines, you guys, so that nobody can get off this ship and they're they're all in together. And then you see how the story plays out, where the deliverance happens. There's this tipping point, I think. It's around verse 33. This is when Paul addresses them after two weeks of being in these rough waters and fasting and working together that he 
brings them in and says, let's break the fast together. He offers what most people think is a sacrament because he offers them bread and gives thanks to God. And then they're all of good cheer. That's what happens in 36. Then were they all of good cheer and they also took some meat. And then in 38, and when they had eaten enough, they lighted the ship and cast out the wheat into the sea. Basically, they're at this point where they fully trust in Paul's word. They, they trust that or at least hope, you know, kind of like what we talked about with planting a seed of desire in Alma 32. They've planted this seed of hope that Paul, that there is this hope that they can make it to this island. They just have to trust and stay. So they dump all the wheat. You guys, to me, that's this big statement of faith because now they can't survive on the ship anymore. They've dumped anything that could sustain them and they have to make it to this island. So they set a course. There's this certain creek that opens up and they see this opportunity and they just are all in. And so they like dodging all the rocks, find their way to this certain creek and this inlet. And in the process, the ship is destroyed, but the passengers are alive. That's remarkable to me. Like that doesn't happen in shipwrecks that all 276 passengers live through this catastrophic loss where the whole ship breaks apart um, is pretty remarkable. It's a miracle moment that will set the stage for what happens next in 28. In DNC 7818, it says, you cannot bear all things now. Nevertheless, be of good cheer for I will lead you along. I think that's what you see in Paul's journey. He doesn't know that a shipwreck is in his future when he's in that prison cell and gets comforted by God. He just knows that if he can maintain his cheer, that he will be guarded and protected and the Lord will lead him along. You almost see the Lord controlling this ship and making things happen because where they land is not some random island where they have to live like Swiss Family Robinson style on scraps. Instead, they land in Malta. You guys, this is an actual island where people live, where they have provisions to take care of these people who are tumbling off the ship, probably starving and battered and bruised, and they care for them. I actually think there's some really beautiful parallels between what happens on Malta and what we saw in Quincy. Do you remember that conference talk? I can't remember, is Elder Cook that gave it? It's in the notes. But he talked about how the people in Quincy were so kind and generous to the saints in Nauvoo when they were struggling, that they gave them provisions, they gave them blankets, they gave them shelter until they had their legs under them. That's what's happening here in Malta. I love that story about Quincy, mostly because I have a brother-in-law and a sister-in-law and their kids who live in Quincy, and they still defend that Quincy is a place of refuge to this day. Um, but that's sort of what you see. You see these people, they call them barbarous people, which just means they don't speak Greek. They speak a different language, but they care for these shipwrecked passengers and bring them into their homes. I just think it's remarkable that there's so many. I mean, this isn't a very big island and 276 starving people just got dumped, almost like refugees get dumped into a city and then they provide for them. They care for them. There's this interesting story about a viper that comes out of the fire. That's in this chapter because essentially what happens is they get a very quick evidence of who Paul is with this encounter with the viper. I don't think Paul knew that a viper was coming at him, but he does respond to it in a way that teaches people who he is. Where the people on the ship took a long time to understand that Paul is someone special to God, the people in Malta learn it really fast. And so the viper comes out, bites him, and attaches onto his hand, and then everybody expects him to die. All the locals know how dangerous that snake is, and they anticipate that Paul's going to drop dead any minute, and they watch him. It's just fascinating. They watch him because they think either two things are going to happen. Either He's going to die, and that means he deserved to be a prisoner, and he's probably a terrible guy. Or he's going to live, in which case he might be a god. Like, it's one of those two options for them. So when Paul shakes the viper into the fire and is fine, 
they're convinced there's something remarkable about Paul. And then he shows what happens with that power. He doesn't claim the power for himself. He doesn't claim to be this amazing God that they are they're putting on him. Instead, he says, what can I do to help? So he goes and he finds out that the chief in this area, his father is sick and Paul goes and heals him. And not just him, but in verse nine, it says that all which had diseases on the island came and were healed. And there's this season of comfort, right? They're going to stay there throughout this winter season until it's safe to sail to Rome. What I think is totally remarkable is that Paul does sail to Rome. You know, he had this chance to be on this island that's comfortable and beautiful. There's people that are kind. He's got relations that are good. People know he's a good person. Like, this is a little safe haven for Paul. And you could have seen him retiring in Malta and saying, this is great. I think I've done all the work God needed me to do. But he knows that the whole reason he's here and that he's still alive and, you know, seeing that snake bite on his hand and knowing he's still alive is because he has work to do. So sort of like the brother of Jared on the beach. He's like, no, I, we are supposed to go. There is, there is something on the other side of this water and I've got to go. So he voluntarily gets back on a ship at some point as a prisoner and heads to Rome. There's a few stops along the way and I won't go into them. You can go in the notes and learn all about them. But one of the things I do love is along the way, as he gets towards Rome, when they stop at these port cities, he finds brethren, which means there are believers in these cities. I don't know if Paul thought he was going to be the first one to open up Rome or if, you know, missionaries have been coming while he's been stuck in prison and doing work in the process. But there must have been such relief and joy that comes to Paul when he encounters these brethren. It reminds me of the Book of Mormon. You know, when Alma and the sons of Mosiah, who've been on these missions to the Lamanites, cross paths miraculously, and then they rejoice, not just that they found each other again, but that they're all still strong in the faith. That's what happens with Paul. So you see at the end of 15 that he thanks God and he took courage because he can see that the work is going on. No matter if Paul's been in prison or out, the work is rolling forth and he takes confidence in that. So then he gets to Rome. Basically, he's under a sort of house arrest. So I think this is a more comfortable setup than he normally has in a prison. He lives in a house and he is, the scholars I read said he's likely still chained to a Roman soldier most of the time, that that Roman soldier would, you know, like they'll swap out new ones, but he will he will be under guard heavily all the time. But he does have some freedom. So where he is used to being a missionary that goes out, now he is someone who invites people in. They can come to his house and he has the liberty to teach. So he'll first teach the Jews and then teach others. And it's that transition that you see at the end of 28. He expounds scriptures. So as people come, they're curious about him. They want to hear his story. These Jews come in and some believe and some don't because he expounds. That's in 23. It says, to whom he expounded and testified the kingdom of God, persuading them concerning Jesus, both out of the law of Moses and out of the prophets from morning till evening. It doesn't matter if Paul is chained to a person or stuck in a cell or on a shipwreck, he will testify and he will teach to anyone that will hear. And then you see the results. Some believed in the things which were spoken and some believed not. This um, message that he always carries to the Jews first falls on deaf ears. In fact, it seems like in 25, it says, and when they agreed not among themselves, they departed after that Paul had spoken. When they hear Paul's words, most of them can't agree on whether he's true or not. And so they retreat. And this is when that prophecy of Isaiah comes to Paul's mind. The same one that the Savior mentioned about the Jews not hearing and not seeing and their hearts waxing cold. So if you look at 27, for the heart of this people is waxed gross and their ears are dull of hearing and their eyes have closed, lest they should see with their ears and hear with, or see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and should be converted and I should heal them. 
that's the same message he's going to say in several different places in scripture, that the Savior's goal is to reach out to all these people, get them to open their eyes and hear with their ears and let this promise sink into their hearts so that they can be converted. They can be changed and progress. They are without navigation at this point, just like the men on that faded ship were. And all he wants to do is provide them the stars to see by. They just won't look up. And so Paul makes a shift at this point in 28. It says, be it known therefore unto you that the salvation of God is sent unto the Gentiles and that they will hear it. That's what's going to happen in the Doctrine and Covenants, you guys. This shift goes from the Jewish shoulders of taking the gospel to all the world to the Gentiles. Because when Joseph Smith translates the Book of Mormon and this work rolls forth and the priesthood is restored, it's now in the hands of Gentiles who will take it out to the world. It's going to come back to the Jews. You know, they're going to be gathered just like the promises have been given, but but it's going to be a different route than what the Jews have thought. And Paul makes that clear. And he does it until his dying breath, I think. You hear that he's in this house arrest for at least two years, and I love the way it's phrased in 31. Preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. We don't know the end of Paul's story. There's tradition that says eventually when he does get to Nero, he's beheaded. Um, we, we don't know exactly. We know little tidbits from the epistles that there is more to his story, but Luke doesn't write anymore. What I think is what you can rest on is that Paul never changes. He is going to be this man all the way to the end, the same way Joseph Smith was. Once that vision occurs, he is that cheerful, you know, welcoming, inviting, reaching out man who will do the work of God in whatever place he is put, and he'll do it until the, until the end with all confidence, no man forbidding him. Welcome back, you guys. This is the creative side of week 31. So this is where I try to take all the things you've been learning in these verses and find ways to apply them to everyday life. So I'm going to give you three simple object lessons you can work with. And this is just designed to like prompt ideas in your mind. So you're welcome to try all these or just use them as a creative kickstart to come up with your own. If you're listening on the podcast or maybe watching on YouTube, I'll give you this preview of the three. And then for those of you in the full course, just keep watching or on the private podcast, keep listening and I will help walk you through each one. I'll also provide the printables and the notes so that you can pull these off in classrooms and in your house and anywhere God calls you to teach this week. Okay, let's get started with the supplies list. I gotta tell you, to be honest, this is probably the fewest supplies I've ever had in a creative week because um, you need almost nothing this week. The first object lesson is about standing up for rights. I really love how Paul demonstrates that he understands his rights as a Roman citizen and he uses that as a platform to prevent abuse and to give himself a way to you know, accomplish what God needed him to do. The reason I like that so much is we've heard a lot of messages from our leaders in the last few years about standing up for our religious freedom. So since this week is Tech Week, and I'm hoping to help you use your technology to teach your kids powerful things about these verses, I thought it would be cool to tap into this sort of unknown area of the Gospel Library app to help you understand your religious rights, understand why they matter, and how we should act on those powers that we have, act on those choices. Okay, so that's the first one. No supplies other than a smartphone. Second object lesson, you actually need no supplies for this one as well, but this is a game. So I really love this week 
how you hear that the Savior called Paul to be a minister and a witness. Those two things together. He's called to demonstrate and talk about his miraculous experience and also be a teacher and a caretaker of all those who God puts in his path. And I think you can show this in a really simple game. It's called Sevens. It's a hand-slapping game that you'll play in small groups or big groups to show how the kingdom of God is designed to work. I'll walk you through it in just a minute. The third one you need some supplies for, but pretty limited. You guys know me by this point. You know I can't cross over a story about a snake coming out of a fire and not do anything with it. So this week on the chart, we are also making vipers. So the intent of this little simple origami type viper is not just that your kids will have something cool to hold on to to remember the story. My hope is that you can use it to teach about how Paul's experience with the viper and healing those people on that island of Malta is actually a fulfillment of prophecy. So you're going to be able to teach your kids about the prophecies of the Savior and how Paul fulfills them with this epic story of the viper. So for this one, you just need copy paper and then a little bit of glue and you'll be good to go. Okay, that's it for your supplies. You guys gather that together and let's get started. Thanks for being here, everybody. That is it for week 31. Snakes, shipwrecks, barbarians. You got all kinds of fun on the horizon this week as you study. If you need extra help this week, I, I would normally talk to you about the live at this point, but I won't be on the live. I'll be at an awesome family reunion with all my siblings. And so I won't be popping on the live this week, but I will be available to reach out if you want to find me on the discussion boards, or if you have a question, you could post it on the YouTube video and I will happily respond to those whenever I get a chance between all the games and the eating of chocolate and all the activities. I'll find a way to message you, but reach out to me on Instagram or reach out to me on the comments or on the discussion boards and I'll get back to you as quick as I can. But I hope you love this week. You guys, we're, we're at a whole new level, right? We've, we've reached the end of the history of these apostles and now we get to see their teachings. The epistles that we're going to study next offer guidance and hope to people who feel like they're just beginning in their conversion story. And I think a lot of us can relate to that. So I think there's a lot yet to be learned. So enjoy this week of study and then come back next week for even more.